Well, thank you all for being here. This is a terrific turnout. Uh, we're hopeful that the fire marshal's not here. <laughs> I'm Harvey Perlman, Chancellor of the University. Uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us today as we convene this Nebraska lecture, our second this year in the Chancellor's Distinguished Lecture Series. Uh, typically, Prem Paul, our Vice Chancellor for Research and Economic Development and a co-sponsor of these lectures, joins us. But he's otherwise committed, and he thought maybe I could get this done myself. So <laughs> I'm on my own. The Nebraska Lectures are an interdisciplinary lecture series designed to foster communications among students and faculty in different academic areas and among citizens of Lincoln and Nebraska. We have been particularly pleased by the community response to these lectures, and certainly we are so today. The Nebraska Lectures are sponsored by the UNL Research Council in cooperation with the Office of the Chancellor and the Office of Research and Economic Development. The Research Council chooses Nebraska lectures from UNL faculty based on major recent accomplishments and the lecturer's ability to communicate their work to a multidisciplinary audience. Today's Nebraska lecture is also sponsored by the Nebraska Humanities Council, and I wish you would join me in thanking them for their sponsorship today. I'd also like to take the opportunity to recognize the sign language interpreters who will be helping us. They are Kelly Brackenhoff and Barb Woodhead. Please join me in thanking them. <laughs> Following Professor Crawford's talk, Michael Huff, Associate Professor of Art and Art History and a member of the Research Council will moderate the question and answer session before we move to a reception in the Heritage Suite. Few historical discoveries have generated more controversy, public fascination, and scholarly research than the Dead Sea Scrolls. Since their recovery more than 60 years ago, scientists, historians, biblical scholars, and many others have examined all aspects of the scroll's meaning. Among these scholars is Sidney White Crawford, Willa Cather Professor and Professor and Chair of Classics and Religious Studies at the University. Ranking among the top archaeological finds of the 20th century, the Dead Sea Scrolls have proven invaluable to the study of biblical writings, Jewish life and thought, and the relationship between early Christianity and Judaism. Scholars have dated the scrolls as early as 2nd century BC. Professor Crawford is part of an international Dead Sea Scrolls publication team and has edited 14 manuscripts from the collection. She has written extensively on various aspects of the scrolls, including the rewritten Bible texts and the role of women in the Qumran community. She says the chance discovery of the scrolls in, scrolls in 1947 completely changed the discipline's scope of thinking and the course of its research. A UNL faculty member since 1997, she holds appointments in women's studies and Judaic studies. She teaches in the areas of Hebrew Bible, Second Temple Judaism, Biblical Hebrew and Feminist Criticism of the Bible. Dr. Crawford holds a bachelor's degree from Trinity College, a Master of Theological Studies from Harvard Divinity School, and a doctorate from Harvard University. She has titled her lecture, The Dead Sea Scrolls After 60 Years, What Have We Learned? Please join me in welcoming Dr. Sidney White Crawford.
Thank you very much, Chancellor Perlman, for that gracious um, introduction. I'd also like to thank Vice Chancellor Paul and the Research Council for inviting me to give this lecture this afternoon. Um, and in the Vice Chancellor's office, Mike Zeleny, Karen Underwood for her extraordinary publicity work, and Joel Brain, who helped a non uh, a, a technophobe with her PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> I'd also like to thank my department, who in my 13 years as chair have always been uh, very understanding of the time I've set aside for research. And I'd like to thank my husband, Dan, who as a fellow academic, uh, makes it very easy to carry on research. The scroll, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947 by accident by two young Bedouin shepherds who were, and here they are, <laughs> who were pasturing their flock of sheep and goats in the region of the Dead Sea um, and were exploring the caves in the region. One of them threw a rock in one of the caves here, this one. And instead of hearing the sound of rock hitting rock, he heard the sound of breaking pottery. And they decided to come back and investigate. And they had to go inside this cave here. And what they found were ceramic jars, inside of which were rolled up manuscripts of leather with writing on them. They didn't recognize the writing. It was ancient Hebrew, but they didn't know that. But they thought someone might be interested in it. And so they took the original seven scrolls out of the caves and brought them back to their encampment. They waited until the winter pasturing season was over and then took them to an antiquities dealer in Bethlehem, who also didn't recognize what the writing was. But again, it was writing. And so someone might be interested. And so he bought four of the scrolls from the Bedouin for the equivalent of about $25. <laughs> the other three were bought by another antiquities dealer for about $20. And news began to filter out that these were available. They were finally identified by researchers at the American Schools of Oriental Research in Jerusalem, so we can be proud as Americans, we were the first to recognize them, as ancient Hebrew manuscripts, some of which were biblical and some of which were not. And this is, as the caption indicates, a manuscript of Isaiah. And once, once that news got out, of course, many people were interested in the scrolls. The seven original scrolls were purchased um, by the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and the Syrian Orthodox bishopric in Jerusalem. They were finally united by the state of Israel, um, and they are now housed in the Shrine of the Book in Jerusalem. This is a second manuscript that came out of that first cave. This is a second manuscript of Isaiah. And you can see that it is a little more fragile <laughs> than the first one. And I want to make sure you see that, because sometimes people think scrolls, well, they're beautiful and whole. Well, 
not so. <laughs> in any case, the Bedouin figured out they had a nice source of income here, and so they began to look for other caves with manuscripts, and this began a race between the Bedouin and the archaeologist to discover scroll caves in the region of Kirbit Qumran. And here is a map that just gives you an idea of the lay of the land. You see Jerusalem over here, Jericho up here. And so the cave finds were here in the northwest corner of the Dead Sea by this archaeological site known as Qumran. Well, the Bedouin discovered Cave 2. The archaeologists discovered Cave 3. Good for them. Uh, the most famous find in Cave 3 was the famous copper scroll, which is written on sheets of copper rather than leather or papyrus. It's the only manuscript in antiquity that we have that was engraved on copper. And so here you see the various sheets displayed in the Amman Museum in Jordan. Uh, the, the race went on, archaeologists, Bedouin, mostly Bedouin winning, until the final cave was discovered in 1956, Cave 11, and from Cave 11 came the famous Temple Scroll, among other manuscripts. However, it was the Bedouin in 1952 who discovered what might be called the mother load of Qumran, of the Dead Sea Scrolls, Cave 4. And Cave 4 is this cave sitting here in this spur of the Marl Terrace. Cave 4 is a man-made cave, as you can see from its smooth walls and floor. And it was made probably as originally as a dwelling place, but it became used for storing scrolls. And we think that the majority of the scrolls were placed in Cave 4 in light of an impending Roman attack on the settlement of Qumran. In, a, in the year 68 A.D. Well, the people who lived at Qumran left their scrolls in the caves, and the Bedouin discovered them in 1952. And what they took out of this cave were over 15,000 fragments, making up about 500 manuscripts. And here is a, a, an example of the kind of fragments that came out of Cave 4. So you get an idea of, of the very tiny fragments that, were, that came out. Some of them are no bigger than a thumbnail. Altogether, there were about 800 fragmentary manuscripts from all 11 caves. So 800 manuscripts from antiquity uh, is just an extraordinary find. There's hardly anything to rival it, and there's certainly nothing to rival it in the area of Syria-Palestine. So this was very exciting. Well, what was found? Well, the first thing that were found were biblical manuscripts. About 25% of the scrolls were what we would call biblical manuscripts. Every book of the Jewish Bible, with the exception of Esther and Nehemiah, were found in the 11 caves. The most numerous examples were the book of Psalms, the book of Deuteronomy, and the book of Isaiah. 
And interestingly enough, those are the most frequently quoted in the New Testament as well. Here is an example of a Deuteronomy manuscript, 4Q Deuteronomy G. 4 stands for Cave 4. Q stands for Qumran. Deuteronomy is kind of obvious, right? And then G is the letter that uh, des describes the particular manuscript. What I want to point out here is these are all the fragments from the manuscript that were recovered. Those of you who know anything about biblical books know the book of Deuteronomy is 34 chapters long. And this is all we have left from this manuscript. So, but it's a lot better than nothing. The second category are previously known Jewish works. That is works that we had been familiar with before, but now we have them in their original languages. And these are about 25% of the scrolls. Britain, from Germany, from Poland, and from the United States, and they were both Catholic and Protestant. Now, at the time, and this is, remember, in the 1940s and 50s, there were no Israelis appointed to the committee because the Jordanians and the Israelis were at war, and there were no Jews appointed to the committee because, again, the Israelis and the Jordanians were at war, and Jews did not have easy access to Jordanian-controlled East Jerusalem. There were also no women appointed to the committee, but there wasn't any political reason for that. <laughs> so these scholars, these seven scholars, began to sort out and classify these fragments and put together the puzzle of the scrolls. And here you see one of the original scholars working with a box of fragments, trying to press them out, figure out what the writing is and what they say, and imagine the work that that was. And eventually they ended up with this, their project in this room that was called the scrollery, and they pressed all the fragments out between glass plates, and they would literally work up and down these plates, identifying fragments, and so here you see three of them hard at work here in the Rockefeller Museum. And my future in the scrolls came about because of this man and this man. John Strugnell was one of the original members of the team. He was British. He was only 23 years old when he began to work on the scrolls. Um, and, but he had an enormous gift for language, and he um, eventually became the editor-in-chief of the Scrolls Project. He was one of my teachers in graduate school. And this man, Frank Moore Cross, was my doctoral dissertation advisor and my closest mentor, um, and was one of the Americans appointed to the team. He is now the only member of the original team who is still living, um, and so those two were my teachers at Harvard and invited me to work with them on the scrolls. So that's how I became involved. Now, let me go back to this, this picture here just to talk a little bit about what was involved in sorting out these fragments. First of all, 
The scrolls were preserved in three languages. The vast majority were in Hebrew, biblical Hebrew or classical Hebrew, the language of the Hebrew Bible. The next greatest language was Aramaic, which is a language closely related to Hebrew, portions of the books of Daniel and Ezra in the Old Testament or Jewish Bible are written in Aramaic. And then finally Greek, which was the language of the Hellenistic and then the Eastern Roman Empire and was the language of the New Testament. So those three languages were necessary for understanding the scrolls. A knowledge too of the art of paleography now, paleography is the dating of handwriting. All of the scrolls, of course, were copied by hand. Um, and um, they were copied by professionally trained scribes. And you can learn to recognize the, um, the characteristics of a handwriting of a professionally trained scribe and date manuscripts on that basis. This is done not only with Hebrew manuscripts, but also with Greek manuscripts and Latin manuscripts. And so it's a very well-known discipline. But these scrolls, all of which are copies, none of them are original, um, are all dated by their handwriting. Some of them were also dated by carbon-14 dating, and those dates line up. So you had to do, you had to have a knowledge of paleography. The oldest manuscript from the Dead Sea Scrolls is a manuscript of Exodus. It dates to about the year 250 BC. The latest scrolls, there are a group of them, and they date to a, the period between 50 and 75 AD. Some of them may have been copied at Qumran, but many were brought from elsewhere in Palestine at the time. However, there are some that were written by the same scribe, and sometimes you can recognize it and go, oh, here's the scribe of so-and-so, and he's now over here. And that's kind of fun when you start recognizing your scribes by their handwriting. <laughs> now, once the scrolls were discovered, the question is, who owned them and where did they come from? What we're looking at right now is another angle of cave four, okay? We're kind of behind cave four now. Here's the cave right there. This is the Wadi Qumran. A wadi is a dry riverbed that can flood in the summers, uh, the winters, pardon me, that can flood in the winters, and that's what gives this area its name. And there was an archeological site here on the plateau that was called by the Arabs so with the discovery of the scrolls, the archaeologists began to excavate this site in the hopes of finding out something about who put the scrolls in the caves. This is an aerial view of the site of Qumran. Okay, you notice it's a very self-contained settlement. It had a watchtower. It had a wall that went along the plateau here that separated the settlement itself from a cemetery, which is right here. Um, notice these long rooms. There would have been a second floor. The round installations that you can see, here's one here, 
another one here. And these kind of rectangular deep installations are water cisterns because as you can guess, water was a major issue in this climate here. And here's cave four again. Actually, here's cave four, five, and six right along here. And so you can see that this settlement is very close to the caves. You can walk right around here and get down into at least some of the caves. So the idea that this settlement and these caves were related was not, of course, far-fetched. Now, what did the archaeologists find? Well, they found a Jewish community. And how do we know they were Jewish? Well, we know because of the presence of these stepped pools, which are ancient mikvaot or ritual baths, which the inhabitants would use for purity rituals. They would walk down, immerse themselves in water, and walk out the other side. And these are distinctly Jewish installations. So that marks the site as Jewish. It's also a community. It's not a village, a cluster of, se of separate houses, um, and it's not a palace or a fortress. It's something else, and how do we know that? Well, for one thing, we have these long open rooms. This one is called the refectory or the uh, dining room, and why was it called that? Well, because right next to it in the pantry <laughs> were found this enormous collection of cups and bowls, which seem to be for um, community meals, um, kind of like we would find in you know, the cafeteria over in Selleck or something, right? You, you had a lot of people eating all at once. And so that marks it as a community, not or a, a communal installation, not as a place where separate families lived. We also know they were literate. That is, there were inkwells that were found there, which means that at least some of them could read and write. What was not found there were scroll fragments. Now that would seem to say, well, then they had nothing to do with the, with the, with the scrolls in the caves, except for the fact that the Romans, when they attacked the settlement, burned it to the ground. And so everything that was combustible in the settlement burned with it, and that would have included any written material that was there. So only ceramics and stone and glass lasted the conflagration. We also found matching pottery um, in, in the settlement and in the cave. So, whoops, sorry, pottery like this was also found in the caves. And so it seems as if the people who put the scrolls in the caves were the same as the people who lived at the site of Qumran. Okay, so who were those people? Well, the majority of scholars think, and I'm one of them, think that they were an ancient Jewish community called the Essenes. We know about the Essenes from the Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote at the end of the first century AD, and the Jewish philosopher Philo, who wrote at about the same time, as well as the Roman geographer Pliny, also about the same time. And Josephus in particular talks about three groups of Jews that dominated Jewish life 
in the late Second Temple period, that is from about the second century BC till the first century AD, okay? And they were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Now the Pharisees and the Sadducees were very well known to us before the discoveries at Qumran. Those of you familiar with the Gospels will recognize them from the Gospels as some of the opponents of Jesus in debate. Those of you familiar with the rabbinic literature will likewise recognize them as the Pharisees, as the predecessors to the rabbis, and the Sadducees as the group that controlled the temple in this period. But the Essenes we really didn't know all that much about. But when we compared what Josephus and Philo had to say about the Essenes with what the scrolls said themselves, there were remarkable correlations. And it seems clear that these are, this, is, this collection of material is the library of an Essene settlement at Qumran. And so let me go back to this aerial view. The Essenes, or a subset of them probably, there were probably more than lived at this site, lived here practi practicing a communal life and used these caves maybe for dwelling places but ultimately for storage of their manuscripts. So what do we have? We have the library of an ancient Jewish group from the period right before the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD. So this is just an enormous find. It, 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 I can't say how big it is, <laughs> but it was very important for filling in huge gaps in our knowledge of this period. What I want to focus on from the discoveries of the scrolls is the area that I work in most closely, which is the questions of canon and text and what their Bible was at the time of the Qumran settlement. Now, I'll go back to that just for a minute. Remember, I've already mentioned that all the books of the Bible in the Jewish canon of scripture, with the exceptions of Nehemiah and Esther, were found at Qumran. During the first decades of Qumran research, that fact was interpreted very simply, that the Jews living at Qumran had the same canon, the same Bible, as Jews today. And they also had other religious literature that they read and copied, so that we didn't think that the Jews then were really any different from Jews today. But the more we looked at this corpus, and this took 20 or 30 years, <laughs> um, we realized that that impression was, was not correct. The picture is not that simple. And so what I want to do this afternoon is to demonstrate, I hope, that our previous picture of what the Bible is and how the canon came to be has both been complicated and clarified by the Dead Sea Scrolls. So I'm a professor, so we have to start with defining our terms, right? <laughs> so the first term we're going to define is Bible, and that comes from uh, the Greek ta biblia, or the books, 
But the term is an anachronism. It did not exist in the last century BCE and the first century CE when those scrolls were put in the caves. Because the word Bible to us refers to a bound collection of individual books. And I have here some Bibles, right? This is a Hebrew Bible or the Masoretic text, the canon, the Bible of the Jewish community. This is a Greek Bible or a Septuagint, the canon or Bible of the Orthodox Christian communities. And this is probably most familiar to many of you. This is a New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, a translation in English that contains the Protestant version of the scriptures. But if you opened up each of those books, they would have different things in them. Even though they're all called Bibles, they're all different. So just because it's between the covers of a book, right, doesn't mean that everyone agrees on what Bible is. So who, how do we know what, what is a Bible? Well, it depends on what community you belong to. Okay? The first Bible that I want to talk about is the Bible of the Samaritans. Now, many of you may be familiar with the name Samaritan from the parable of the Good Samaritan in the Gospel of Luke, right? What you may not realize is that there are still Samaritans around. <laughs> there are not many of them. They live in what is today the West Bank around uh, their ancient sacred site of Shechem, but they are a viable community and they practice their ancient religion. And they accept as their canon or Bible simply the first five books of the Jewish Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, what we refer to sometimes as the Torah or law or the Pentateuch. That's all the Samaritans have as their Bible. Now, the Jewish canon or the Jewish Bible is more familiar. It consists of the Torah, the first five books, but then also the prophets, which includes historical books like Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, but also the famous prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Book of the Twelve. In addition, the Jewish Bible contains the writings, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, etc. So the Jewish Bible has is, is this collection of books. So if you went into Barnes and Noble and you wanted to buy a Jewish Bible and you got one from the Jewish Publication Society of America, for example, that's what you'd get in it. Okay. Now, the Christians adopted the Jewish Bible as part of their canon, and they call it the Old Testament. Protestant Christians have an Old Testament that's the same as the Jewish canon, but they put the books in a slightly different order. And I've given you a little guideline here, okay? But if I was to open this Protestant Bible and compare the table of contents with the Jewish Bible, they would be the same. They would just be slightly in a slightly different order. 
However, the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic churches have the same Old Testament as the Protestants, but they add the books of the, the Apocrypha or the Deutero or Second Canon. Okay? And these are the books of Tobit, Judas, etc. And so these become part of the Bible for Orthodox Christians and Roman Catholic Christians. The Orthodox and Slavonic churches add even more books. They add four other books, First Esdras, the Prayer of Manasseh, Psalm 151, and Third Maccabees. And finally, the Ethiopi Ethiopian Orthodox Church adds the Book of Jubilees and First Enoch, which most of you may not have even heard of, but is part of the canon of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. So you see by these examples that we can't just use the term Bible lightly. Different people, different groups, mean different things by the term Bible, depending on their canon of scripture. So how do we get to the canon? Okay. That's something that most people don't think about, right? The Bible's the Bible. You go and buy it at Barnes and Noble or pick it up in your church or it's on your shelf from your family or whatever, and there it is. But how did we get it? How did this canon come about? Who decided? <laughs> That's something that people don't think about. Well, prior to the period of the canonization of Scripture, instead of a whole collection of books as a canon or an, as an authority, different individual books were considered authoritative. So a sacred authoritative text is an individual work that a religious community acknowledges as having authority over the faith and practice of its members. Now, books of the Bible are authoritative, right? Jews think of Deuteronomy, for example, as having authority over their faith and practice. Christians would think of the Gospel of John as having authority over their faith and practice. But in addition, other books that are not biblical, that are not part of the canon, could be considered authoritative. For example, within Judaism, the Talmud has authority over faith and practice. In Christianity, the Nicene Creed, which is not a book at all, but a creed, has authority over faith. Okay, so you can have individual books. A canon, on the other hand, is a collection of those individual sacred com compositions, all written at different times by different authors. This collection becomes authoritative and standard for defining orthodox religious beliefs and practices. And that decision is usually a kind of a long one. It isn't made all at once. And it's made by a community. Within the Jewish community, it was made by the rabbis, teachers who had particular authority, whose authority was acknowledged in the Jewish community, and gradually these books were accepted as standard. That process probably began in the fourth century BC 
and closed sometime in the third century AD. So you can see it was a very long process. In the Christian community, that decision was made by church councils um, in the third and fourth centuries AD. And so the Council of Nicaea, which propagated the Nicene Creed, also had a great deal to do with what was going to be the canon of the new Christian movement. Okay. But remember, I'm talking about the second century BC to the first century AD. So there was no canon at the time. So when we talk about Qumran and what they accepted as their canon, we really don't want to use the word canon. We want to use the term authoritative books. And they did have authoritative books at Qumran. And we can tell that from clues within the manuscripts themselves. So what are the clues that the manuscripts give us as to what books were authoritative at Qumran? The first clue is if a book or part of it is quoted authoritatively by other compositions or is the subject of a separate commentary. That indicates that they held this book in high esteem. So for example, in one of their compositions called the Damascus document, there's a quote, they shall be caught in fornication twice by taking a second wife while the first is alive, whereas the principle of creation is male and female he created them. That's a direct quote from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It indicates to us that the author of the Damascus document held the book of Genesis as an authority. Okay. So that's one way you can tell. The second way is if a book becomes the subject of a commentary. That is, it's held in high enough esteem that you're going to try and explain it, expl explicate it, interpret it, exegete it. And there are biblical commentaries at Qumran. They're called Pesharim. And several of the prophets have Pesharim dedicated to them, Habakkuk, Nahum, Psalms, Isaiah, Micah, Zephaniah, and Malachi. So we can tell that they were considered authoritative. Now some of you who are listening closely just noticed that I counted Psalms as one of the prophetic books. And I did that quite deliberately because at Qumran, they did consider Psalms a prophetic book, as they did in the New Testament. So very interesting. Okay. So that's one way. A second way is if the book presents itself as authoritative, written in the name of Moses or some other ancient figure. And so the book purports to come from Moses. Okay, so the book wants you to believe it's authoritative. The question is then, did the community accept that? Well, in the case of a book like Deuteronomy, yes, they did. But in a case of a book like the Temple Scroll, which was, according to the Temple Scroll itself, dictated by God to Moses, right? How much more authority can you get than that, right? As far as we can tell, they didn't accept that, right? So the Temple Scroll doesn't make it into the canon, okay? So that's our second criteria. 
The third is if the book exists in multiple copies, because that is an indication to us that they thought it was important. This isn't as strong a criteria because, of course, the finding of the scrolls was an accident. So we don't know if we have the complete collection, right? We can only say this is what we have, this is the information we can extrapolate from it. However, if we take those three criteria and we put them together, this is what we discover. The authoritative books at Qumran were the Jewish canon of scripture minus the books of Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, First and Second Chronicles, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. That is, we do not believe that those books at the end there were considered authoritative by the Qumran community. Esther wasn't there, okay, and they didn't celebrate the holiday of Purim, so we're pretty sure about Esther. Nehemiah wasn't there, but the book of Ezra was, so it's probable that Nehemiah was also there with Ezra. But nevertheless, they never quoted authoritatively. It's not the subject of a commentary. The same is true of First and Second Chronicles. We don't have Song of Songs in its complete form, and Ecclesiastes is there only in one manuscript. Okay. So the basic Jewish canon of scripture. Okay. But did they consider anything else authoritative? Well, there we have again to look at the, at the evidence of the manuscripts. They do give a list of books they considered authoritative in a document called 4Q Mixat Ma'asei Torah, or Some of the Deeds of the Torah. And they give the list as the law, the prophets, and David. Well, okay, we know what the law was, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. We know what the prophets were. Okay, we've got that. But what is David? Well, David is certainly Psalms, because you'll remember that Psalms are attributed to David. But we're not sure if it meant anything further than Psalms. So that category of the writings, and let me go back to that, is the one that's iffy. If Psalms is David, then what about these other ones? Well, Proverbs is quoted authoritatively in other books. Okay, so we can accept that. The book of Job is there, and it's also there in a targum, or translation into Aramaic. So they clearly think it's important enough to, to translate. So that's probably an indication of authority, okay? Um, Daniel is there in multiple copies, and they quote it authoritatively. It's these other books that we're not quite sure of. So the boundary of authority versus non-authority is, is fluid, right? It's permeable. We can't be quite sure. That also actually works the other way. Now, I want to point out to you a couple of things. Here in the Orthodox and Slavonic Church canon, Psalm 151, Jubilees in First Enoch in the Ethiopic canon. It seems that at Qumran, those three books were also considered authoritative. And how do we know that? 
Well, first of all, first Enoch was found in multiple copies at Qumran, more than many biblical books, in its original language, which was Aramaic. Enoch was also a figure of central importance in the theology and writings preserved by the community. That is, they quote it, they talk about Enoch. Enoch is really important. Thirdly, Enoch, the book of Enoch advocates for a solar calendar, a way of counting the years according to the phases of the sun. As many of you know, the calendar in Judaism today is a lunar calendar. That is, the calendar is counted according to the moon. However, it looks like from the evidence the Qumran community, one Jewish community in this period, used a solar calendar based on the book of Enoch. And so it seems that they counted Enoch as an authoritative text at Qumran. Again, interestingly enough, the book of Enoch is quoted by the letter of Jude in the New Testament, opening up a question about what at least the author of Jude thought was authoritative. The book of Jubilees, again, is found in multiple copies, 17 of them, in its original language at Qumran, and it's quoted as an authority. Once again, here's the Damascus document. As for the exact determination of their times to which Israel turns a blind eye, behold, it is strictly defined in the book of the divisions of the times into their jubilees and weeks. That's the name of the book, <laughs> right? And so they thought that was an authority, and notice they're talking about the exact determination of their times, in other words, calendar. So calendar was a big issue for these people, versus other Jews at the time. Psalm 151 appears in a Psalms manuscript known as 11Q Psalms A in among the other Psalms. And that's so it seems that it at least was considered part of, of the Psalms collection, um, but was not accepted later as part of the Psalms collection. So we have a little bit of a different canon or authoritative group here at Qumran than the later Jewish canon in use today. We can also notice that especially important among the books was the Torah, particularly Deuteronomy, 27 manuscripts of Deuteronomy, the Psalms, 30 of Psalms, and Isaiah, 25 manuscripts of Isaiah. So these were clearly very important books in the community, quoted extensively. Now, the second question that I want to raise this afternoon is the question of text. Because like the canon, the text of the Hebrew Bible, the actual words in those manuscripts, was not fixed at the time of Qumran. And that's kind of shocking to hear, that the actual words, the text, was not stabilized until later than the Qumran settlement. Why was this? Well, first of all, texts were hand copied. Okay, so the minute you start hand copying texts, what happens? Mistakes creep in, right? We all know about hand copying. Secondly, Books of the Bible actually grew slowly, and their form did not get fixed until relatively late in their existence. 
So I mentioned that Psalm 151, part of one psalm scroll but not another. That is, the number of, scroll, of psalms in a psalm scroll wasn't fixed at the time. And so you still have a process of kind of, of, the, of the final form taking shape. And so we can learn a lot about the history of the biblical text, the words themselves, from the manuscripts at Qumran. Now, before the Qumran discoveries, we had three major witnesses to the text of the Hebrew Bible. We had the Masoretic text, which is this, which is the canon of the Jewish Bible. We had the Septuagint, which is the translation into Greek of the Hebrew Bible. And we had the Samaritan Pentateuch, which is the Samaritan scripture. Already before the Qumran discoveries, we knew that these three witnesses had difference from had differences from each other. So already we were in business as textual critics. But the latest, the earliest manuscript we had of the Masoretic text came only from the 9th century AD, the 800s, called the Aleppo Codex. The earliest manuscripts of the Septuagint came from the 1st century AD, okay, the, um, the um, Codex Sinaiticus from the Sinai Desert is one of them. And the Samaritan Pentateuch manuscripts are actually much later than that. So our, our manuscript evidence really wasn't that old. When we get to the Qumran discovery, suddenly our manuscript evidence is a thousand years older than previously. So this was very exciting for textual critics. So what did we find in these manuscripts? I'll just show you a picture of a nice one there. We found that there were several, there was evidence for all sorts of variation. First, there was simple error. Mistakes that would just be made inadvertently. Somebody made a mistake in copying, and then that error would continue to be copied. It would kind of multiply itself. That's easy to see and easy to correct. There was simple expansion small expansions that would creep in inadvertently again and then just continue to expand. And one of the most common is the addition of the word and. So instead of having, for example, your manservant, your maidservant, your ox, your ass, and the stranger who was within your gates, you might have your manservant and your maidservant and your ox and your ass and the stranger who is within your gates. The and really doesn't add anything, but you can see how people would just start adding them, right? <laughs> and it would just kind of grow. Again, that's easy to spot and relatively easy to correct. But then there's a third type of error, of variant, and these are real variants, places where the words are actually different and you can't choose between one or the other. And I'll give you one example. This is from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8. In the Masoretic text, this one, it says, he established the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. That same verse in the Septuagint reads, he established the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. And a manuscript from Qumran, 4Q Deuteronomy J, reads, 
he established the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, that's a real variant, sons of God versus sons of Israel. How do you determine which one is original? Sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. But the task of the text critic is to try and figure that out. Well, we found a lot of these, and I want to show you a major one in one of the manuscripts that I edited. This is 4Q Deuteronomy N. This is the actual extent of the manuscript. It was a little small manuscript. Begins here in chapter 5, verse 1, and goes through to chapter 6, verse 1 over here, and then this is chapter 8, verses 5 through 10. Remember that Hebrew reads from right to left, okay? Well, 4Q Deuteronomy N contains a passage which has been harmonized. That is, two, two passages that have different words have been brought into harmony in this manuscript. And it, that harmonization is found in the Ten Commandments in the Fourth Commandment, which is about keeping the Sabbath day holy. That fourth commandment appears twice in the Hebrew Bible, the first time in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with this. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. That commandment also appears in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And it goes on. But then it says, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So it's the same commandment, keep the Sabbath day holy. But the reason for keeping the commandment is different in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Okay. Here's 4Q Deuteronomy N and its version of the Sabbath commandment. Observe the Sabbath day to sanctify it according as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do in it any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your ox or your ass or your beast, your sojourner who is in your gates, in order that your male servant and your female servant may rest like you. And remember that you were a servant in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you forth from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day to sanctify it. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all which is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day to sanctify it. Our scribe here has taken, whoops, <laughs> our scribe has taken the Deuteronomy reason. Here's the Deuteronomy reason. And then the Exodus reason, and put them both together in what turns out to be a very long Sabbath commandment. <laughs> but 
the interesting, and we can see what he's done, right? I mean, I made this italic so you can see it, but you would have been able to spot it anyway. But if you didn't know that Deuteronomy existed and Exodus existed, there's no reason you wouldn't think that this was the commandment, right? There's no mark in the manuscript itself. This is the process of harmonization, of editing that goes on in these manuscripts, and it's fascinating to watch. Now, another example comes from the book of Exodus, and this is a, a slightly different example. This is an example of a scribe adding material into an already existing biblical text to try and explain it further. This comes from Exodus, from the uh, event at the Red Sea. The Israelites have crossed safely, and then it says, then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went, women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. Then Moses ordered Israel to set out from the Red Sea, and the text continues. Now, Miriam sang this, but that's not really much of a song. It's more like a refrain, right? <laughs> so it might leave open the question, did she sing anywhere el anything else? Well, we have a scribe that's tried to supply that answer for you. This is from a manuscript called 4Q365, or 4Q reworked Pentateuch C. And we see it starts off with, a, whoops, I keep hitting the wrong button. <laughs> it starts off with our Exodus text. Then Miriam the prophet, sister of Aaron, took her timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, and then we have what she sang to them. And it's pretty fragmentary, right? A word here, a word there. But you get the idea that it was a song. You are great, a deliverer. The hope of the enemy has peri perished, and he is forgotten. They perished in the mighty waters, the enemy. Extol the one who raises up, the one who does gloriously. So it's a song of praise to God, who have, who's delivered the Israelites in the Red Sea. And then the text continues, and Moses traveled with Israel from the sea, etc., etc. So again, our scribe has undertaken help you with the biblical text, okay? And there's no indication in the manuscript that this is an addition. But sometimes scribes went so far as to really produce two editions of, the, of a book. This is true in the book of Jeremiah. There are two editions, a short form found in the Septuagint, the Greek Bible, and also in two Qumran manuscripts, 4Q Jeremiah B and 4Q Jeremiah D, and a long form found in the Masoretic text and two Qumran manuscripts, 4Q Jeremiah A and C. Now, first of all, both forms were found in the same cave, side by side, so the people who lived there weren't disturbed that they were different. Secondly, one form became canonical, in Orthodox Christianity, one form became canonical in Judaism and thus later in Protestant Christianity. Okay. They're both forms of the book of Jeremiah, but they're different, and they're different enough to be noticeable. And so 
the text of the Bible was not fixed in this period at all. And we know that now, and we can trace its history. My own research now is, in, is involved in investigating these scribal schools in the Second Temple period, the scribes who were doing this kind of thing. Scribes were responsible for handing down in written form the learning and traditions of the Jewish community. That was their job. And so I'm interested in the question of how did the scribes think about their activities? What were their motivations? For example, what was the motivation of the scribe who added in this song of Miriam? Well, one thing I can certainly say is that these scribes, when they were doing these things, were not, they were treating the text with reverence and respect. We now think of a fixed text, right? And you can't change it. We have really strict laws about plagiarism. I want to remind students here, right? Okay. <laughs> it was different in the ancient world. And these were not copyrighted or anything like that, right? And so the tradition was to be handed down, but also brought up to date. And that was the job of the scribe. And by, by working with the biblical text in the way that they were, they were doing their job. They were handling the text with reverence and respect. And so we can, I could say that certainly. What I would like to be able to say is, did they come from a particular school? Was there a particular tradition they were wed to? Did the Essenes have one scribal school and the Pharisees another? Why did we end up with a short form of Jeremiah that became canonical in the Septuagint and a long form that came, became canonical in the Masoretic text? What was going on in the Second Temple period that enabled that kind of activity to go on? And why did different communities, the Samaritans, the rabbinic Jews, or the early Christians, choose the text they did as their canonical text? So that's my, my current research, and you can wish me luck, and we'll see how it goes. So to close, what have we learned from the Dead Sea Scrolls in the last 60 years? Well, first we've learned that there was a multiplicity in Judaism during the Second Temple period. There was a multiplicity in texts, in authoritative books, in practice, and in theology. Second, we've learned a great deal about the history of the biblical text and the formation of the Jewish and later Christian canon. And third, we've learned much about the antecedents of Christianity that lie within Second Temple Judaism. And I tried to give you some little hints about that as my talk went along this afternoon. So we've learned a great deal, but there's still a great deal to learn, whether in the next 60 or 600 years. So I'd like to thank you very much all for coming.
that um, Ezra and Nehemiah were not included in the Essene, is that because they tried to withdraw themselves from the temple, and these were temp rebuilding the temple um, scriptures? That might have something to do with it. I may not be on anymore. Am I on? <coughs> I'm on, okay. That might have something to do with it. It's not clear entirely. They did have the book of Ezra there, so they were reading it. They just don't seem to be quoting it as an authority or um, you know, copying it a lot. So it, it, it's not, it doesn't seem to have the kind of authority for them that, say, Deuteronomy did. But they didn't reject it entirely. Esther, they seem to have rejected entirely. So it's a little different. But it might have something to do with their attitude. Specifically about the book of Isaiah, uh, you may have answered a couple of these uh, since I wrote a, a question, but it, uh, it was over a thousand years older than what we had before. <laughs> okay. And is that true also of Isaiah, I assume? Biblical book, every biblical book. Yep, yep. And I, sh I, I hope everybody realized when I say biblical, I mean of the Jewish Bible. There was no New Testament found at Qumran. And that um, Isaiah was one of those that was the most intact of the scrolls that were found. Well, that one large manuscript that I showed you—that's because it was actually in a jar, so it wasn't subject to the to the worms and the dirt and everything else. So it was, it was relatively intact. Um, but the other manuscripts of Isaiah that were found were just as fragmentary. Right. So that well, was kind of the luck of the draw. Because of that being the most intact, did, what, had, what new has been learned about what we knew before about the book of Isaiah? For well, example, a lot about the text. Prayer. Right, a lot about the text um, in the sense of uh, the exact wording. <laughs> Um, not so much about the, f the canonical form of the book. That seems to have been set by the time we get that Isaiah manuscript. So a lot about the text and the wording. Two quick questions, Professor. One, uh, do any of the modern translations of the Bible, and I'm speaking of whether it be the Jewish, the Orthodox, the Ethiopic, or Protestant Christianity, include any... Um, of the wordings or phrases of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls from Qumran? And second of all, what is the book of Kohelet? Oh, Kohelet. <laughs> Those are my two questions. Yeah, that's a good question. Whoa. <laughs> okay. Um, first of all, yes. In, uh, if the first question is yes. Um, if it, often in translations, you know, they have those little notes at the bottom of the page that'll give you some information. If you see a little note that says Q, that stands for Qumran, and it means that they have adopted a reading from one of the scrolls for this Bible translation. That is, the translators have determined that the reading preserved by the Qumran manuscript is uh, a better, a more original um, reading than 
we knew previously. So yes, it has come down in that way. Kohelet is the Hebrew name for the book of Ecclesiastes. So <laughs> that was an easy question. <laughs> okay, some, uh, one of the scrolls was found on, inscribed on copper. Yes. Was that older? No, it's actually later than the other scrolls. It's a list of temple treasures. The big question has been, is it real or not? <laughs> and there's a lot of argument among scholars. Um, some scholars actually went looking for the treasure. None of them got really rich really fast, so I don't think they found it. But it's possible that when the temple was, was destroyed by the Romans, someone actually brought this scroll and hid it as a record of the treasures that had been in the temple before it was destroyed by the Romans. I think that's probably the most likely explanation. But it's slightly later than the other scrolls. It comes from the end of the first century AD. Is it true that there are four scrolls that are privately owned and the scholars don't have access to them? Uh, yes, um, there, are, it's, there are some scrolls, and it's better to say scroll fragments, um, that are in private hands one um, collector, um, his name is Shoyan, um, who is Norwegian, and he actually is allowing his scrolls now to be um, edited and published, um, and that's a good thing. Um, but there are others that are in private hands. We don't think there's very much, um, but there are some. Yeah. Thank you for the very interesting uh, lecture, Professor. I'd like to ask if... <coughs> If in any of the manuscripts there is any mention of the precursor, John the Baptist, and any allusions to him possibly being an Essene, a member of the Essene community. That was a theory that some scholars voiced very early on in Dead Sea Scrolls research. It's now mostly discounted because for several reasons. First of all, the scrolls make absolutely no mention of the early Christian movement. They don't seem to have noticed it at all. This may be surprising to us, but if you think about the historical context, it's not too surprising because if Jesus was crucified in about 33 AD and the settlement was destroyed in 68 AD, that's not a very long time in between and the, and the early Christian movement would have been quite small. So they don't take any notice of Christianity. And then looking at the figure of John the Baptist, he seems to have been a lone operator. He wasn't a member of a community. This is a very strong community operation where it would have been actually impossible to live alone and do what John the Baptist did. Now, were John the Baptist's ideas possibly affected by some Essene ideas, yes, that's possible, but that he was an Essene, no, that's very unlikely. So there was not an Essene community at the time of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, there was, but they don't seem to have interacted. Unless there's a mention in the Gospel of Matthew, and I, I you know, this is a possible indication that Jesus did know of the Essene community. In the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, 
Um, Jesus says, you have, heard that it was, that you have heard it said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, you should um, love your enemy and turn the other cheek to the one who smites you. Well, the question in scholarship, of course, scholars say, well, who said <laughs> you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy? Well, the Essenes, in fact, say that. <laughs> and so it's possible that Jesus is reacting to an Essene teaching, but he's reacting negatively. He didn't like it. And the Essene community was very exclusive in its practice, whereas the Jesus movement, Jesus' own community and the and the movement that followed him was very inclusive in its practice. And so they were quite different. They were quite different. Uh, the Essene community was all male. Uh, was there also another community composed of families living near? Right. The Essenes, we now think, were not all male. Uh, the Essenes had women in the community. Um, some lived in family units. In the, in the towns of, of Judea. The settlement at Qumran was probably a special settlement um, composed almost entirely of males. There's no archeological evidence there for females, but it was probably a, a place for elders of the community or for special periods of study or something like that. But normal Essene life did include women and families. Okay. Very interesting. Thanks a lot. Real quicker. Um, it's, it's interesting. I, I'm saying this as an atheist. Um, it's, from, from my point of view, you're, you're kind of not trying to draw a debate. And I'd like to get your opinion on this. Um, according to adherence.com and the United Nations, there's something like 3,700 to 4,000 religions on the earth. Mm -hmm. And I'm just finding it so interesting, the permutations and the variations and, and uh, these things are just confluing. This is just one religion. Uh, this is this is just one religion interpretation and uh, imagine. Right. Well, and it's a movement so I, within a religion. Yeah. Right. Movements. I'm sure you know. So, what is? I'm not asking for your personal religious belief. That's up to you. I'm just curious what you think of that. These different permutations and whatnot from just one movement. Well, if I understand your your question correctly, I think that. If when we study religion broadly conceived, which we do in my department at the university, you know, what we find is that there seems to be a deep hunger within human beings for contact with what they understand to be the divine. And that can take many different forms. And it's as true in antiquity, which is my period of study, as it is today. I think that what's very interesting is that we tend to think of, you know, people in antiquity, you know, uh, that it, it was a much more narrow range of beliefs than it is today, when in fact, in the period in which I'm interested in, the, which is the Greco-Roman period, there was a, a huge range of beliefs, a huge range of beliefs. Um, and the, the way that these different religious groups influenced each other is a fascinating study in and of itself. So, you know, I guess you could say the more things change, the more they stay the same. But, um, so, I, I hope that at least to some extent answers your question. On behalf of the chancellor who had to dart out, and on behalf of Prem Paul and also the Research Council, I would like to thank everyone for coming in and violating every fire code known to the <laughs> university. <laughs>
especially, I would like to thank Professor Sidney White Crawford for giving us a message from on high. <laughs> Very wonderful talk. <laughs>